Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 81. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 20 through 22 in the first book of Kings and follow the consideration of satire and prophecy. Or is it prophecy and satire? So in case you're just joining the program, the handful of previous episodes have been a healthy mix of dynastic politics and prophetic interventions. You'll have a king in Judah or Israel engaging in some kind of nonsense, and a prophet will appear to try and set things right. The last episode's iteration of this dynamic pitted Eliyahu the Tishbite against Ahav in a brash public smackdown which not only ended a long God-imposed drought, but ended at the lives of hundreds of prophets of Baal. And we left things kind of up in the air between Eliyahu and Ahav as the final confrontation between them has yet to go down. Well, folks, you're in for a treat. It's happening in this episode. But not before we have a little bit of international politics, a war between Israel and Aram, which the Arameans are winning. They're besieging Ahav's capital in the hills of Samaria, so Ahav assumes that with some persuasion, Ben-Hadad, the Aramean king, would agree to beg off after making Israel a vassal to Aram, which isn't an unusual arrangement in this time in history, except that Ben-Hadad isn't interested. After some back and forth, Ahav decides to resist, and after the arrival of an anonymous prophet who arrives to confirm God's support for this decision, Ahav musters the provincial commanders, whoever they are, and sets out to attack. Success! Ben-Hadad barely escapes with his life. He may be down, but not out, as the prophet tells Ahav that the Arameans will return in the spring, so he should get ready. The Arameans, in fact, do plan on returning, but this time, since they think they believe that God is a hill god, the next attack should begin in the plains, which they mount the following spring. But Israel wins again. Ahab apparently was supposed to give Ben-Hadad the royal treatment, that is, he was supposed to kill the Aramean king, just like Shaul was supposed to kill the Amalekite king Agag back in 1 Samuel. So when he extends professional courtesy instead... Big mistake. Big Huge. So the nameless prophet starts this whole elaborate ruse to get the point across. He tries to get some random guy to rough him up, and the random guy refuses to do it. And so the prophet says, quote, Inasmuch as you did not heed the voice of the Lord, you are now about to go away from me, and a lion will strike you. I don't know about you, but a sentence which includes not heeding the voice of the Lord and being eaten by a lion usually doesn't bode well for the listener. <laughs> A second man sees the lion eating the first guy. And so when the prophet asks to be roughed up, the second man obliges and smacks the crap out of the prophet who bandages himself up to disguise himself. All of this just to send Ahav a message, which is... You done messed up, A.A. Ron! But this isn't the last time that Ahav's going to mess up. Chapter 21 introduces Navot, the owner of a lovely vineyard in the Israel Valley, with the unfortunate luck of being Ahav's neighbor. Ahav wants the vineyard and makes all kinds of offers, but it's rejected. And besides, Navot says, his vineyard is a biblical allotment, quote, the Lord forbid that I should give away the estate of my fathers. At which point, Ahav retires and... I want to watch my show! 
Queen Isabel discovers Achav in this sorry state and tells her husband not to worry, she'll handle it. And handle it she does. She concocts a plot to scare up witnesses to testify that Navot cursed God and the king, which is a crime punishable by death and, apparently, confiscation of property. And before one can say a pair of completely immoral scumbags, Navot is dead and the vineyard is claimed by Achav. At which point, Eliyahu is roused from wherever he has been roused from, and he marches off to Achav's now expanded holdings in Israel to confront the king. Quote, Thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken hold? And he continues and unloads on Achav with both barrels, foretelling the end of Achav's dynastic line and the brutal demise of Izevel. Surprisingly, Achav is shaken by this. He rends his clothes, he fasts, and for this... God tells Eliyahu that he will stay his hand, and that all the destruction that will rain down will rain down on Ahav's sons and not Ahav. What a guy. Chapter 22 concludes 1 Kings with some more political shenanigans. This time Yehoshaphat, the king of Judea, wants to seize some land from the Arameans, and he enlists Ahav to help. And all of Ahav's house prophets seem pretty excited about the idea, except Yehoshaphat who says, Don't you have any prophets of God anywhere? And Ahav says, quote, There is still one man through whom to inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he will not prophesy good about me but evil. To which Yehoshaphat replies, quote, Let not the king say that. So they bring out Michayahu, who has been warned slash threatened by Ahav's messenger to basically rubber stamp what the other house prophets have already decided. So when Michayahu says, quote, Go up and prosper, and the Lord shall give it into the hand of the king, this snarky comment doesn't really fool anyone. So eventually Michayahu speaks truth and prophecies a terrible end for Ahav and all of Israel, and then one of the house prophets, Sidkiah ben Kna'ana, steps up and smacks Michayahu in the face. Ahav has Michayahu arrested until Ahav returns victorious. Any guesses on how the battle went? Here's an evocative image, quote, And then his chariot was washed beside the pool of Samaria, and the dogs came and licked his blood at the place where the prostitutes bathed. Damn! First Kings concludes with some nice column inches about Jehoshaphat before jump-cutting north to Israel, where Ahaziah, the son of Ahav, continues in the path of his wicked father. His reckoning, however, will have to wait until the next episode. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. Prophets have one job, to transmit the will of God to a human audience, in a human voice. So God tells him, the, the prophet, or in one case her, a message, and the prophet is charged with the task of telling the people, or telling the king, or whomever that God wants to have told. In a sense, the first prophet in the Tanakh is, is Moshe. There are numerous references in the Torah testifying to this fact, but the best is the last. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10, quote, But there arose no further prophet in Israel like Moshe, whom God knew face to face. And the thing is that going in, Moshe didn't want the job. Perhaps he knew that the job was utterly thankless. Perhaps he guessed that he would come into serious conflict. But in the end, he went. And he transmitted the word of God first to his people. Thanks, Obama. And then to Pharaoh. Who is this God that I should let your people go? And we know how all that turned out. The bitter confrontations, the plagues, the devastation, and then, ultimately, success. The Jews are freed. But even then, throughout the sojourn in the desert, Moshe's unenviable task continues.
In a sense, Moshe being the first prophet sets the tone for those that follow. Even though, according to Deuteronomy, there would never be another prophet is good, the job description would remain, as well as the risks. And the subsequent prophets reluctantly fulfill their responsibilities, especially those that are installed as permanent fixtures in the palaces of kings. Shmuel guts it out under Shaul, telling Israel's first king that God will tear the kingdom from him in the same way that Shaul tore Shmuel's cloak. That's the whole, you know, Agag, the Amalekite king incident I mentioned before. But the thing is that Shmuel as prophet preceded the monarchy. In fact, Shmuel's oil pouring on folks' heads made the monarchy. So one can understand why Shmuel was not intimidated in the least by Shaul. But when Shmuel dies, all the prophets that will eventually emerge will do so in a reality where the king is a permanent fixture and a man who wields absolute power can wield absolute power. It's a reality where the wrong word might result in your head being separated from your shoulders, which is perhaps why later Natan, the prophet, chose to use a parable to relay God's displeasure with David and his act of premeditated murder and tangentially rape in 2 Samuel. Because had it not been David, but a lesser, more venal man, Natan could have ended up like Ned Stark. My mother wishes me to let Lord Eddard join the Night's Watch. Stripped of all titles and powers, he would serve the realm in permanent exile. And my lady Sansa has begged mercy for her father. But they have the soft hearts of women. So long as I am your king, treason shall never go unpunished. Sir Illyn, bring me his head. <laughs> So, our introduction to Eliyahu brings us back to a prophetic mode where our prophets all like, And I don't care if it's mama to ass, grandmama, innocent bystanders, little kids, babysitters, bill collectors, whatever. I leave this whole block filled with hot grass if I have to. And you know why? Because I just don't give a fuck. And Eliyahu tells it like it is. Every time he confronts Ahav, there are insults and provocation. Ahav calls him Ocher Yisrael or the troubler of Israel. One hears this phrase a lot in the Israeli right when they're describing anybody pretty much to the left of the sitting prime minister. And, and then Eliyahu comes back with the schoolyard classic. Oh yeah? Well, I'm not. You are. Wow, wow. Sick burn. <laughs> then there's that bit about Eliyahu dissing the people and telling them they can't hop between two crevices. That was like kind of cutting. And, and then in the final confrontation with Ahav, Ahav sees him and says, have you found me, oh my enemy? And Eliyahu says, now get ready for this one, he says, I have. So despite the weak writer's room, Eliyahu still manages to bring the noise. And you know, today we're no less in need of folks speaking truth to power because people in power are well deserving of a proper tongue lashing and the wrath of God. But rather than going head to head with the kings and potentates of our days, North America has evolved a different mode comedy. Using comedy to confront power was not invented by Stephen Colbert, but his 2006 hosting of the White House Correspondents Association dinner was a legendary takedown of one of the most powerful men on earth, and it was done to his face and publicly. 
From 2005 to 2014, Stephen Colbert was host of The Colbert Report, in which he appeared as Stephen Colbert, a right-wing pundit who loved America almost as much as he loved himself. So when he was asked to host the White House Correspondents' Dinner, it was clear that he was going to bring some noise, that he would savage the press corps for their meek coverage of the antics of the George W. Bush White House was to be expected. But Colbert turned his attention also to W. himself, who was sitting not three meters away, stage right. Let's have a listen, shall we? I stand by this man. I stand by this man because he stands for things. Not only for things, he stands on things. Things like aircraft carriers and rubble and recently flooded city squares. And that sends a strong message that no matter what happens to America, she will always rebound with the most powerfully staged photo ops in the world. Now, there may be an energy crisis. Well, this, this president has a very forward-thinking energy policy. Why do you think he's down on the ranch cutting that brush all the time? He's trying to create an alternative energy source. By 2008, we will have a mesquite-powered car. And, I, and I, I just like the guy. He's a good Joe. Obviously loves his wife. He calls her his better half. And poll show, America agrees. And she's, a, she's a true lady and a wonderful woman, but I, I, just, I, just have, I just have one beef, ma'am. I'm sorry, but um, this reading initiative, I've, I'm sorry, I've never been a fan of books. I don't trust them. They're all fact, no heart. I mean, they're elitists telling us what is or isn't true or what did or didn't happen. Who's Britannica to tell me the Panama Canal was built in 1914? If I want to say it was built in 1941, that's my right as an American. I'm with the president. Let history decide what did or did not happen. The greatest thing about this man is he's steady. You know where he stands. He believes the same thing Wednesday that he believed on Monday, no matter what happened Tuesday. <laughs> Events can change. This man's beliefs never will. I recall seeing shorter clips of Colbert the following day, and I thought to myself, how is it possible that Colbert was allowed to leave the building after that? in a different time or a different place, Colbert would have been disappeared soon after, if not hustled out of the room during. Now, I'm sure that Stephen Colbert or John Stewart or Trevor Noah or Larry Wilmore or John Oliver or Samantha Bee might say that they are not speaking truth to power. They would say, maybe, that they're just telling jokes. Maybe. Well, Samantha Bee might say something else. But jokes have the potential to overturn the existing order. Anthropologists with wholesome names like Mary Douglas have pointed out that jokes involve, quote, a victorious tilting of uncontrol against control. It is an image of the leveling of hierarchy, the triumph of intimacy over formality, of unofficial values over official ones. In human English, jokes stir the pot and threaten to upend it. So one wonders, maybe Eliyahu would have been more effective if he put together a different writer's room. He clearly has the whole zinger thing down. Well, at least Ahab did. He could have used a little work. But if you recall the trash talking of the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel, there the material was really tight. Eliyahu was more of a finger wagger than a wag. But if you consider finger-wagging's effectiveness, because that's really the goal of the prophet, right? To transmit God's message to make sure it is received and understood, does finger-wagging work? 
Well, if we consider Eliyahu, you know, he had a tr tremendous short-term impact, but very little medium to long-term linger. Getting told off or listening to a sweeping Jeremiah has the capability of either tapping into your shame or your anger. But it can move you into action. The people rally to Eliyahu on Mount Carmel after the pyrotechnics, and they, you know, grab the prophets of Baal, and they're really excited about God, but, you know, memories are short, and folks regress and slip. Ahav remained in power. But Ahav, the big sinner that he is, is actually moved to repent by another of Eliyahu's condemnations, so much so that even God appreciates its sincerity, and he defers the terrible punishment to Ahav's sons. So Ahav can live out his days, the few that remain, without seeing his dynasty crumble. That merry disintegration will be reserved for his son. And when you think about the whole John Stewart comedy mode, a mode, incidentally, whose roots go deeper, at least to ancient Greece with Aristophanes in the 5th century BCE, one can justifiably ask, what does the joke tap into? Now, if you ask Jamal Bowie over at Slate, the answer is cynicism, and cynicism is an action killer. Bowie pondered John Stewart's contribution to American political discourse when Stewart stepped down from his host job over at The Daily Show in 2015. As Bowie wrote, quote, To the gaggle of American liberals who watch Stewart and thrive on his comedy, this is a terrible blow, since for them he is a sparkling island of sanity in a polluted ocean of inane shouting and dishonest personalities. But as Bowie goes on to say what Stewart did best, was shine a light on the folks in government who richly deserve to be mocked for their dishonesty, incompetence, and self-seriousness. But what Stewart also promoted was a view of government that saw it as irreparably hypocritical and dysfunctional. This Bowie decries is self-defeating and nihilistic. Furthermore, you know, Bowie is saddened by Stewart's chief contribution to the discourse, making outrage, cynicism, and condescension the language of the left. Now, I wouldn't go as far as Jamal Bowie and lay all this on Stewart. For me, Stewart and his disciples, Colbert, Samantha B., Larry Wilmore, John Oliver, etc., Trevor Noah, blah, 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 they do important work by holding people in power accountable, most often with their own words. But for me, the issue is not the message, it's the medium. And we, all of us, willingly collaborate with the format of the medium. Yes, I know that seems like a tremendous cop-out, but just give me one minute and hear me out. Let's take Samantha Bee as an example. She, incidentally, is the only female host of a show. And she is the only host who stands during her show, which gives her performance an additional zets of energy. Her format is somewhat different in that her show, like John Oliver's, is weekly, and so she has a lot of time to really process the week's events that she so painstakingly skewers. But throughout, she is the agent. She tenses, she writhes, she contorts. She's the voice, and we listen, we watch, we spectate as she takes down the man. But regardless of her particular brand of satire, this plus minus is how we as spectators process hers and all of the other politically edgy shows. We are spectators, from the French spectateur or the Latin spectare to gaze or observe. Our position, our role in this dynamic is to be passive from the get-go. And when we witness Samantha B. whomever eviscerates some clueless politician, we are there watching, sitting back, laughing, satisfied by the interaction, as if all the work now is done, as if the struggle is now over because the joke landed. For me, that's where this brand of humor does us a disservice. We are lulled into complacency by it. 
and perhaps it's not appropriate to expect these folks to issue a call to action. That would probably cross some kind of line from, hey, I'm just a comedian to, you know, hey, I'm a left-wing or right-wing activist who uses humor, which might make those profit-seeking apolitical-seeming networks skittish about giving those folks a platform. But then again, what what do you want from Samantha B? They've She's brought the horse to water. Can she really be expected to force it to admire the view? Does she really need to spell it out for us? Well, comedians and satirists do not need to spell it out for us. That's not their job. But that is the job of the prophet. And to achieve that goal of delivering God's message, which always includes a call to action, they will employ a variety of techniques to get the point across. As we conclude 1 Kings and segue into 2 Kings, we will not only be talking of kings, but meeting even more prophets, folks like Elisha, Yeshayahu, or Isaiah, Yirmiyahu, or Jeremiah, and we'll explore the rowdy relationship between people in power and the voice of reason and the charge of morality. There'll be moments of tension, anger, and violence, but there'll also be moments of macabre irony, biting mockery, and my favorite, sarcasm. So stay tuned. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 82, when we begin the second book of Kings with chapters 1 through 3.